I've never seen so much mental health need in my whole career. The gap that there is now, I think, in terms of the, the amount of need and how many people are out there that can help is, is too big a void. We, we need another solution. Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee. Welcome to Feel Better, Live More. So today on the podcast, I'm really pleased to be speaking to someone who I have known since I was a child. His dad and my dad were very close friends, and our families used to hang out a lot when we were young. It is, of course, my good friend and doctor of 23 years, Dr. Ian Panja. Now, some of you will know that Ian has been on my podcast several times before, many times, of course, to interview me around the publication of my previous books. Ian is a busy, in-the-trenches National Health Service GP. He's also a brilliant health communicator, and together we have co-created the widely acclaimed Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine course that is fully accredited by the Royal College of GPs that we have delivered to thousands of doctors and other healthcare professionals. Recently, we have put that entire course online and opened it up to all healthcare professionals all across the globe. And the link to that course for those of you who are interested in learning more is in the show notes section on my website, as well as the episode description in your podcast app. And we start off the conversation talking about the current challenges that exist for NHS GPs and the changes to the way surgeries have run since March 2020 which has been really tough for patients and doctors alike. Now, Ian shares the reality of his GP workloads, and I think for many people, this may come as a surprise. He talks about the tsunami of mental health problems that he is now seeing, and how the past two years have affected the resilience of so many of us. We also talk about something that we have named the symptom web. It is something we teach healthcare professionals as part of our prescribing lifestyle medicine training course, but it's also a tool that we can all use on ourselves. It's basically about looking at the eight key lifestyle factors that influence health to help us identify and then address potential issues. We also talk about the huge bias that does exist in modern medicine towards treating acute illness, while chronic conditions that build with time often go unmanaged and overlooked but there is so much that we can all do to take control of our health and reduce the likelihood of getting sick later on in life, whether that be from heart disease, Alzheimer's, cancer, autoimmune disease, and so much more. We also chat about the recent death of Ian's father. We discuss our own experiences around grief, as well as the importance of compassionate listening. That is just as important among friends and partners as it is in the doctor-patient relationship. Ian is one of my closest friends. He's also one of the very best clinicians that I know. I always enjoy catching up with him face-to-face. -face. With the mics running, I hope you enjoy listening. Before we get started, just a quick shout out to Blue Blocks who are supporting this week's show. Now in the episode today, you're going to find out about the eight different factors that influence our health in what Ian and I call the symptom web. And of course, sleep is one of those eight key factors. Good quality sleep is absolutely essential for so many different aspects of our health, 
And of course, we all know that life feels better when we have slept better. Our mood, our focus, our energy, as well as our ability to interact with loved ones. Now, as a doctor, one of the biggest obstacles to sleep that I see is light. In particular, too much artificial light in the evenings. And this is where Blue Blots can really help. They have a fantastic range of products to help us sleep better. Now, Blue Blots make some quite brilliant blue light blocking glasses, which I myself have been using for over two years now, and I continue to use them. They really can make a big difference to the quality of your sleep, especially if you are spending time on screens in the evening. And I think at this time of year, as the days are pretty short and the nights are pretty long, I think it's even more important. All of their glasses come in non-prescription, prescription and reading options, and I think so much of their glasses that my wife and both of my children have their own pairs. Now, they are a bit more expensive than other companies, but I genuinely think the extra cost is worth it because they are high-quality lenses made in an optics laboratory in Australia. They ship worldwide really quickly and enable easy returns and exchanges. They are offering my podcast listeners 20% off anything that you order on their website. And they've also got other fantastic sleep promoting products such as low blue light bulbs and 100% blackout sleep masks, both of which I also use. All you have to do is use the discount code LIVEMORE20. That's all one word and no space. You use that at the checkout for 20% off or just go direct to blueblocks.com forward slash livemore. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com forward slash livemore and the discount will be automatically applied. Now, my conversation with Dr. Ian Pancher. You mentioned that work is full on. Hmm. You are, you know, right in the trenches as an NHS GP. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because there's a lot in the press in the UK. There's a lot of perceptions that people have on the outside, but kind of what is it really like at the moment, would you say? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I'm very aware that people get sick of people moaning all the time. And GPs often come across as a group that complain about how hard life is and how hard we work. And, and of course, you know, on the surface, you know, we're very well paid. And, you know, it, it's a job like any other. I think what's happened in the last year, year and a half, because of COVID-19, because of lockdowns, because of the way that we've been forced to work in some ways, the amount of activity that comes through to an NHS GP is, is so much more than it was even a year prior to that. And it's like a hamster wheel. The more work you do, the more work comes in. You know, it never it never goes the other way. It's never quiet. And the perception, I think, because because it's you know, we're we're the closest to patients in some ways. We 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 don't we're not in a hospital environment. Yeah. It's really difficult to see the the risks because it just it looks I remember there was a doctor that used to work for us whose husband has a hospital job and just could not understand how she was always late home from from the practice and said to her, you know, how hard can it be? It's just a list of names on a screen. <laughs> Completely missing the point that one of those names next to it might have, I oh, tried to commit suicide yesterday, 
been seen by mental health, mental health referred back to the GP, will only speak to Dr. X. You know, that's one of about 80 or 90 calls, not calls, because you might have to bring them in, obviously, but problems that you have to solve. In, and in one day. In one in one day. And and that is a challenge, you know. And, and you know, my colleagues and I, I, I think we do the best job that we can. And, but you know, even with the most superhuman skills, there's a limit to how much you can do. So it's, um, you know, and what we see has changed as well. I mean, mental health, um, I've never seen so much mental health need in my whole career. Um, and, and other things, these sort of mystery symptoms that have been grumbling along that people put up with, um, which we can talk about. I mean, I, you know, I, I refer to it as evolving autoimmunity, but just sort of people who aren't feeling right, but they, you can't quite put your finger on it. And of course, yeah. the medical model doesn't always work for that because we kind of think, well, can't really find anything, sent you for loads of tests, everything's normal, carry on, you know. And so there's a lot more of that. Um, I, th I think everyone's just had such yeah. a hard time. So, I mean, I mean, two things that really stand out there for me are, of course, the intense and potentially unmanageable workload really let's be honest hmm. <laughs> right it's yeah the nhs has relied for years on people going above and beyond the call of duty but it does seem to have ramped up massively regarding patients and what you're seeing hmm. a couple of interesting things that you said one is that you have never seen this level of mental health problems coming in um you've been a doctor for what 25 years now is that not yeah not quite oh, it's a long time but yeah <laughs> 23 knocking on 23 i think yeah yeah okay quite so 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 over 20 years yeah, yeah um i think these unexplained symptoms and evolving autoimmunity we should talk about as well but let's just talk about mental health problems mm. what do you mean you've never seen it this bad you know paint a picture for mm. us so not just in terms of stats where you've got, you know, a million people waiting for mental health treatment, but so it's not a statistical thing necessarily, but just in terms of the qualitative nature of why people ring up. So if they, they may ring up with something physical and if you, you know, like myself, I, you know, you know, I think I'm, I'm fairly compassionate and I listen and I take the patient seriously and I want to help them that allows them a bit more space to to say and actually i'm really sorry but you know i'm just not coping and and, and a patient that i might have known for 10 years who is quite resilient inverted commas is is suddenly on the edge and and as a as a doctor i'm sort of thinking whoa you know if, if they're struggling then that that's you know you know that sort of thing where yeah. you think you know, you play your friend at tennis and he's like, oh, you know, my arm's injured and actually can't serve. And you think, oh, actually his arm really must be injured because he's he's not serving. He'd normally, you know, beat me six, six love, six love, whatever. And it's the same with that. You know, you, you, you a, a lot of my calibration is on people I've known for quite a while. And the ones that normally quite resilient are, are not, they're struggling. So that's at the sort of milder end, I'd say. But then at the other end, in terms of, you know, there's not a day that goes by on Twitter now where there's there's a post about someone who committed suicide and no one knew. I'm sure you see them as well. Yeah. A lot of them are NHS staff, unfortunately. Really, really sad and, and horrific in a way. And 
you know, for someone to get to that point where they no longer want to be here, I mean, you know, we, we, we've got to look at ways of making that a kind of never event. And the problem is that the the gap that there is now, I think, in terms of the, the amount of need and how many people are out there that can help is is too big a void. We, we need another solution. I don't know what that is, but I just know what we're doing at the moment is the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a massive problem. Hmm. Yeah, it, it is. And I think the difficulty is the tools that we've always had to deal with whatever mental health issue it is, whether it's anxiety, depression, or um, just well-being, which is, I guess, sort of proactive, um, the, a lot of those things just aren't working, I think, because of the environment, because of restrictions, but not just that. We're, you know, in terms of well-being, for example, what makes well-being? So digressing a bit, but on my podcast, there's an episode on well-being. And I think people who tuned into it were expecting me to talk about diet and exercise and and movement and actually what I start with is about environment you know if you if you are in a toxic environment say forgetting covid for now but if you are in a toxic relationship or your home environment is is not good or your working environment is toxic it doesn't matter whether you've got the healthiest diet in the world or you you know run across the south downs every day you will not have good well-being because do you know what I mean? It's at a base Sorry. level. And I think the problem is all of us are in a, in a terrible environment at the moment because we're all going through these incredible, I don't want to use the word unprecedented, but I've just used it, unprecedented times where our freedoms have been affected. You know, things that you take for granted, like seeing your family or or just going to the shops or getting on public transport suddenly are yeah. much harder to do. And, and we've been ground down. It's been a long haul. Yeah. It, it really has. And this kind of pressure is literally creating a cauldron of bubbling mental health problems. Some will blow up now, some will blow up in years or in months, but it's still going on. I mean, would you agree with that? Or do you have a slightly different perspective? No, no I, I, do, I do agree with it. And I think the difficulty and why it's so hard to get a handle on it is that you use the word bubbling up, you know, and in terms of language, that's exactly right. And my sort of way of putting that is that all of those things happen in slow motion, whereas COVID is very acute, you know, and, and, and these numbers are very acute. It's like, look, there were X number of infections and X number of deaths, which are horrific stats, you know, so the, the, the deaths, you know, every single one kind of affects you, doesn't it, when you look at those numbers. But what's going on here doesn't happen acutely until it does. You know, the suicide, for example, which is an acute, awful event, is the end of the of the line of this kind of slow motion, kind of this indolent thing that's going on that you can't really measure and you can't really see. But slowly but surely, a lot of lives are sort of falling apart, yeah. you know. And, and, and I think that's what makes it so difficult. You, you kind of need to be aware of... If there was some sort of magical early warning system, like symptoms, um, you know, which there are for certain conditions, obviously, but, you know, then we'd be able to kind of take stock of them and, and possibly do something. But that doesn't sort of exist yeah. in medicine. It's not something that we're used to doing, that true kind of prevention. In terms of practical tools, 
and I know full well just like you that every case is different, mm. right? So we can't necessarily say for anxiety, do this, for depression, do this. So, you know, there are some kind of common things that we know work, but, mm. you know, we're very aligned in how we look at patients. It's very individual. It's very personalized to that individual's life and their triggers. But in terms of sharing some sort of um, practical bits of wisdom, what are some of your kind of um, go-to tips, I guess, when people are struggling with their mental health? Yeah, if, we, if we're thinking about mental health, firstly, I totally agree with you. It's whatever it is, whether it's mental health or physical health, it's all connected, isn't it? The whole thing is just connected up. We are a bunch of biological systems that are continuously intercommunicating. And when they start to malfunction, you start to get symptoms, you know, and this is what I meant, you know, I'll come back to mental health in a second. But when I was talking about evolving autoimmunity, it's one of those, you know, how people joke about everything falling apart at 40. And that's not normally what they mean by that is, oh, I don't know what's going on, doctor, you know, I just I don't feel right, you know, can't, my, can't digest my food, my joints ache a bit, I'm getting these headaches in the morning, my wife thinks I'm depressed. And increasingly, I realised because that happens to a lot of people they're all interconnected that is those symptoms are a sign of systemic malfunction there's something not working correctly for them to get all of these inflammatory symptoms whatever they might be and mental health in some ways is no different i think the difficulty is that we've you know and if you look at you know what you and i teach on on our course the symptom web for example which are the eight kind of factors that give rise to anyone's health at any one point when it comes to non-communicable disease. So we're not talking about the acute stuff. Non-communicable disease is something that you don't catch from someone else. So we're not talking about COVID-19, for example, but potentially long COVID, which is, you know, something that is established would fit into this framework or joint pains or feeling depressed or having heartburn. You know, these are things that you don't, they come from, they arise from within, if you like. They're not things that you've caught from someone else. Or I guess autoimmune disease. Autoimmune disease would fit well well into that. And, and as you know, you know, the factors that we look at are, you know, stress, sleep, diet, movement, historical infections, which I'll, which I'll come back to, your environment, which you've already talked about, your genes, and then sunlight, which is a sort of a euphemism for vitamin D, but sunlight probably better to be honest um and, and and actually if you look at those eight things and 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 you know one of the things I, i've had to do this on myself and i i'm i'm sure you have i've had to do this several times and i do it quite often if i'm not feeling right something will 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 pop out you know and i, I can tell you that you know my health pretty much collapsed when i was 40 and it took me about six months to work out why and and it was using this kind of framework in my head and, and I'll tell you what it was for me so my daughter wasn't sleeping for about three years and every night we'd be up almost all night I had a lot of stress at work I had a complaint that wasn't really anything to do with me in the end but it was it was horrific and I was my stress levels were through the roof and the other thing is that many years ago, historical infections, I had something called dengue fever and I was in hospital for two weeks, very, very ill. You were um, about 18, 19 then, is that right, travelling? That's right, yeah, yeah. with, with um, my mates Vic and Alex. And um, anyway, I was, I was very, very poorly. But you forget about these things once you recover. But actually, historical infections, things like glandular fever, for example, they leave a stamp on your immune system. And you'll see that people that, you know, go on to suffer symptoms like fatigue 
often have that kind of story in their background. So those three things in my symptom web, the historical infection of dengue fever, no sleep for two or three years, I say no sleep, but very little sleep, and very high levels of stress were enough to totally upset my system. And overnight, I literally couldn't think. I remember going into Costa Coffee next to my surgery and not being able to order. I always have the same thing as well, which is a black Americano. And, you know, I was just staring at this thing thinking, my brain's just not working. And, you know, my neck was aching. I couldn't sort of... It, I, literally, overnight, it was almost like my memory wasn't working. My joints weren't working. I was getting terrible bloating after me. I turned into one of these patients, you know, yeah. and the answer wasn't in any kind of medical intervention. It was about making adjustments and changing things in my lifestyle i know people get annoyed with that phrase but you know in my life i guess yeah yeah so and 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 what was going on there you, you know for the people who, who kind of thinking well what what was wrong with you you know and a lot of my friends were like oh maybe you're depressed or trying to sort of stick a label on it going well maybe you just imagined it all you know that whole and i'm like no no i definitely didn't imagine it and i and um and i I suspect it was that evolving autoimmunity. It was system malfunction where nothing was working. My gut, my brain, everything was sort of off kilter. Yeah. And all the things that you talk about on your podcast and in your books and, you know, that I'm going to be talking about in my book, which which will come out next year, um, is really about how you put that right. And, and, you know, the framework for that is something that you and I teach um yeah. and you know i it's one of those things i wish everyone kind of knew about because you know it, it works i mean we'll definitely get to the course because lots of people have been asking me for us to talk about it a bit more um that you know the course that we teach doctors and other healthcare professionals but i think your story is is fascinating and i think many people listening or watching this will resonate with that and this phrase of evolving autoimmunity, I think, needs a bit of unpacking because mm -hmm. there's this kind of thinking in medicine, isn't there, that certainly the way we've been taught and, and the way much of it is practice is it's very black and white. You either fit into the disease category or you don't. Mm. So, for example, let's take something that, you know, many people have heard of type 2 diabetes. Okay, when your blood sugar hits a certain mark, let's say on a type of blood test called an HbA1c, let's say mm. at 6.5, for example, mm. you know, we say you have type 2 diabetes. Mm. And, you know, 6 to 6.5 is pre-diabetes. So you can go get your, uh, your blood checked. And if it comes back at 5.9 or 5.7, right, that is often reported as normal. And I think this is a great way for people to understand it. It's like, well, it may be normal, but is it optimal? Is it optimal for you, right? Maybe your optimal was an HbA1c of five and maybe it's progressively been going up and now you're at 5.7, but potentially if you do nothing in three years, that may have crept into the pre-diabetic range or the type two diabetes range. And we often discharge people like that. I say we, the profession, and there's many reasons for that. I think it is training. I think it's also the way the system's set up, but that's called normal, right? That is not normal. An HbA1c at 5.9, categorically to me, it is very rare that that is ever a normal result, yet it gets reported as normal. So it's this idea that by the time you get a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, things were probably starting to go wrong for five, maybe 10 years, 
right? We yeah. know, let's say, Alzheimer's. By the time you get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, that process started at least 30 years ago in your brain. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think that's where medicine will evolve too. We'll start to pick up these things mm. much earlier on. And I think autoimmunity also fits into that bucket where by the time you get the diagnosis of, let's say, what my dad had, right, lupus, mm. that didn't, he didn't just wake up one morning with lupus. Mm. No, there were signals and triggers going into his body for, uh, a, you know, for many, many years. Some I touched on before, I've written a lot about this in, in my next book, um, about what happened to dads. But this was a relatively with hindsight, a predictable events that this was always going to happen. And I, I really feel we have to reframe things for the public, for the profession, in terms of how we look at these things. You either have the disease or you don't. And as you say, maybe had you done nothing at 40, you know, you might have been sitting here now with an autoimmune disease, with a, with a label and a diagnosis. Do you ever think about that? I do, I do. And, and listening to you say that, I totally agree with you. You know this this sort of idea that you wake up one day with celiac disease or or lupus or, or any any you know it's never like that, is it? There's something going on you know in, in your immune system way before that. Um, but but actually listening to you say that, I, I, sometimes what I do, I, I I sort of think, let me just listen to this as though I was the doctor I was before I knew all this and a lot of medics will be thinking well what do you do then if you if you even if you do find that it's going to happen what do you just get them on steroids early on or what you know and and the difficulty I think is that um the interventions that seem very soft like for example singing there's loads of benefits to singing you know because it sort of activates your vagus nerve for example and the vagus is important for stress management, anxiety. You know, um, it also, years ago, I made a, a short film down in Kent about COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and how actually improves your lung capacity. These are all patients with by established singing. disease by singing, yeah. yeah. And they were in a choir. It was wonderful. But I, I think the thing is, there is data on this stuff, but it's not kind of, because it's not a drug or it's not a kind of intervention that, is going to have grade one evidence. It seems a bit, a lot of singing is probably a bad example, but maybe dietary changes or exercise or sleep, for example, um, we, we kind of know they're important. And the thing that I think you and I try very hard to do is we, we everyone sort of knows that those things work, but, but it's doing it that's quite difficult, yeah. you know, and fitting it into your life. And I think I think we very much understand that. And, and you've got to start with where the person's at to make sure that they can just do something. You, you can't do all of it overnight. It's very difficult. Some, some people do. I remember a, a friend of mine, he shall remain nameless. He bought a stop smoking book, very, very popular, probably the best stop smoking book of all time and had read the whole thing in like 40 minutes and then <laughs> rang me up and went, I'm still smoking. And I'm like, you just tried too hot, just just slow down, you know. And the problem is a lot of people have that attitude towards health. And yeah. I think I think this sort of early warning, you know, these early warning signs, it, it, it's about taking note of them and then slowly making some changes to see yeah. if they help, you know. And, and also there's an inevitability in medicine. I think some medics that I know would be like, well, you know, you're going to get it anyway. I mean, what's the point? It's, you know, there's, a, there's that sort of attitude, which I, I don't, I don't bite. Well, if you get in early enough, and even when you have crossed, the, let's say, the threshold, 
often you can turn it around, right? Yeah. Often it isn't, oh, you're in the, you've got, you know, you're in the disease club now, you have to stay there. It's not, it's just not true. I wasn't taught this at medical school, but I had to go out, learn it, like you, with our own interest. And, you know, I'm delighted that we have put it together for people in our course prescribing lifestyle medicine. Um, you know, what's your take on the course? Because, you know, it's hard for us to talk about it like this, but mm. look, the feedback is just incredible. We've had, well, maybe over 2,000 people now uh, do the course. You know, feedback is incredible. I think 95% of people say they're highly satisfied. Over 90%, I think, have said it has significantly changed the way they practice. And we're talking mm. about initially, yeah, GPs, Many hospital specialists have come. I know there's been a psychiatrist, endocrinologists, cardiologists, hmm. um, and now we're sort of expanding out. I know I'm incredibly proud of the course. Hmm. Um, tell me about it from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's it was it was a bit of a. I, I remember when we first did it in 2017. It was we didn't really know what to expect, and then we got this amazing kind of reception because there was clearly this gap that you and I had kind of known about for a while and other people had been sort of feeling it. And then as soon as that first course went out, we thought, wow, you know, there's definitely something in this because people are coming back with so many success stories and just, you know, and, and I, I, me too, I'm extremely proud of it. It's been, we've sort of revamped it somewhat, haven't we? And it's sort of, it's been updated and it's been, kind of put online because obviously we used to do it face to face i mean we love doing it face to face you know what three yeah. four times a year we do it face to face maybe 200 250 people there uh we could talk to them we could interact with them that was great yeah. and i hope we can do something like that again soon but you know we have converted mm. it uh online yeah yeah and we can now have people from anywhere in the world doing it which yeah. is which is fantastic which, which is amazing and we we i mean it's the same content isn't it got a, as in like you know you still get exactly what you would get because we, we we filmed it here didn't we sort of down the road but but um and and i think i think what just going back to what you were saying about type 2 diabetes so nowadays it's very common parlance in the world of medicine and well-being and the public that low carbohydrate diets are helpful in type 2 diabetes and i think you do a diabetes case on the course, um, yeah. you know, and it's a really, really brilliant moment for me because, um, A, you, you approach it from a different angle and B, you realise that the, the case that you picked was a guy who was already on a low-carb diet and it wasn't working. Yeah. And suddenly, going back to, you know, the symptom web, you realise that there was other things going on in his routine that were driving his blood glucose up. Yeah. It wasn't to do with what he was eating. Actually, he was so focused on his diet that that in itself was becoming stressful. And that stress was actually driving <laughs> yeah. his yeah. blood sugar. And you, you see this a lot, right? And I'm always trying to stand back and look at the big picture. Yeah. When we think of lifestyle, food is something that gets a lot of attention for good reason. Hmm. Food is a very, very important factor, but it is not the only one. And it's not always the lever that needs turning. But I'm always thinking about lifestyle with my patients, right? I'm always thinking about what is it in their lifestyle, in their environment, in their past history, in their childhood experiences that may be contributing to the person that I, I'm seeing in front of me today. And then when you look at that, there's always 
a whole range of different ways that you can approach it. And, you know, I've tried various methods over the years and I feel I don't always get it right first time, but I kind of feel I get a really good feel now of what is what is the key lever to turn that by default will correct another three or four things straight away. So instead of trying four or five different things, what is the one thing I can turn? So let's say sleep, for example, people who are struggling with blood sugar, um, whether that is for type 2 diabetes or, or for, for something else, and many people have blood sugar ups and downs, yes, the diet helps. I'm not saying it doesn't, but I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, sleep deprivation will drive your blood sugar up. Being stressed, you know, your, your blood sugar going up is a perfectly normal response to stress, right? It helps you in that acute situation to mobilize energy and do what you need to do to get out of that stressful situation. But if that acute stress becomes chronic stress, if it's your, you know, we're talking about the state of the world at the moment, Right. If you're experiencing this low-grade chronic day-to-day -day stress, well, for some people, that is why your blood sugar is elevated. And I think that's what we do really well on the course is bring the big picture to people. And I, I've got to be honest, I think it is rather unique what we teach. I guess it's not really a course, right? It's um, We teach people a framework hmm. on how they can apply it. And I think that's why clinicians really, really love it. Because it's not just hearing, oh, I could do this. We're like, you could do a million things, right? Here's, as you mentioned, the symptom web. And then we create something called the personal framework mm. where people can actually, it actually spits out the lifestyle prescription for you. Mm. And, you know, it took us months to kind of come up with that. There's a real deceptive simplicity to it. Mm. But I think that's because people can learn, they can listen to, let's say my podcast or your podcast, they can read books, they can learn about things. But it's then, well, how do you put it together for that individual? And I'll be honest, one of the things I love, yes, I love that these clinicians, um, you know, go on and then they help their patients or their clients. I also love that the feedback we get is that they figured out how to sort their own health out as well. Mm, there's a lot of that, isn't there? Yeah, they're like, oh, yeah. I did the symptom web on myself and now yeah. my joint pain's gone or my mood is better. And in some ways, I actually think that's super important to do it on yourself because once you're once you see the power, you're kind of sort of really invested. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, what, what yeah. are your reflections on that? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, I think you, you and I are sort of living proof of that in some way. But um, yeah, it, it's it's the it's the most powerful thing, isn't it? Where if you've experienced something yourself and you 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 can feel that it works. It, it, and part of it is, is is what I was saying earlier on is that although all the studies that we sort of present and all of the science is evidence based, actually what 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 this framework is there's no sort of although we are in the new product actually we're collecting data aren't we which which will show that it works I guess yeah. Um, but yeah it, it, it's 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 a magic moment when when they sort of think hang on I've, it actually works you know I've just actually tried these these things and and one one of the things. Again, one of the things I we, that we teach is 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 how to get that info out, and this thing about understanding what someone's typical day is like is really important, isn't it? You know, and often often I, I, there's not a week that goes by that I don't do this 
clinically, you know, in terms of consulting, I'll often say, tell me about your typical day, because then you'll get a really good snapshot of that person's life, you know, like you know they might uh, eat all their meals standing up well no wonder you've got heartburn you know that sort of thing as i'm hearing that aim because i'm mm. conscious that not everyone who listens to the show mm. well, i say not everyone the majority of people who listen are not a healthcare professional sure but i think it's a really key point there which is what is a typical day like for you now yeah we can ask our patient that mm. to try and build up a snapshot but like everyone who's listening to this right now could try that exercise on themselves, couldn't they? Yeah. Like they could try and honestly go, not like your best day where you're living your best life, but what is a typical Tuesday like, right? Yeah. How does it roll? And actually, I don't know what you say, I'd say write it down, right? Instead of just going in your head, yeah, I sort of like get ready, have my breakfast, I drop the kids at school. No, no, no. I, I, think, I think people should write it down and go, okay, step by step, what do I do? I wake up every little piece what do i do you know how do you eat are you standing up are you rushing mm. around are you having your your toast in the car while you're dropping the kit you know because people could sort of do it to themselves yeah. couldn't they? And you have to sort of watch yourself from the outside almost it's it's quite it's do you know what i mean you it's can't sort of when, you're, like when, a, when you're when you're yeah it's kind of journaling right that's yeah. what journaling is it's yeah. like you stepping outside exactly. your life and looking exactly. in on it or well, that's one aspect of it it's yeah. kind of you could journal your own typical day. I like that. I hope yeah. people do that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny, something random happened this morning, which is only the second time it's happened to me in the last 20 years, I think. Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Leafyard, a fantastic new mental health app that helps motivate people to take control of their mental well-being. Now, as you've been hearing already in this episode, many people are struggling with their mental health at the moment. And the truth is that all of us struggle from time to time and need help building up our mental fitness and resilience, whether we have a diagnosed mental health problem or not. And we know that science has proven that there are so many things that we can do that will improve our mental fitness. Sleep, exercise, breathwork, mindfulness, meditation, journaling, relationships, changing our thought patterns. The problem is, though, many of us, despite knowing what to do, we don't actually take action, especially when we're not feeling our best. And I think this is where Leafyard can really, really help. It is a web app that takes a very different approach to building physical and mental fitness. It uses proven behavioral science to gently push you to take small steps every day to change the way that you feel. Leafyard helps you to keep your mind healthy through a series of regular videos that will teach you how to cope with stress, increase happiness, and build resilience and confidence. It will help you put into practice a lot of the things that you may have heard about in this podcast or read about in my books. And a few of my team members have been actively using Leafyard for the past few months and tell me it has made a big difference to their mental well-being. Leafyard are giving my podcast listeners an exclusive limited time offer, 20% off any Leafyard membership. All you have to do is go to leafyard.com and use the code LIVEMORE20 at checkout to get 20% off or go to leafyard.com forward slash livemore. That's L-E-A-F-Y-A-R-D.com forward slash livemore and the discount will be automatically applied. And if you're not sure, give it a try. 
everyone can try the app free of charge for 14 days. Athletic Greens are also supporting today's show. And of course, nutrition is one of those eight key factors that determine our health and well-being. Now, in an ideal world, I would definitely prefer that everyone gets all of their nutrition from real whole foods. But I know from 20 years of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to consistently do that. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. Busy schedules, poor sleep, too much stress, not having enough time to cook the right kinds of meals means that many of us struggle to get all of the nutrients that we need. That is why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1 by Athletic Greens. One tasty scoop contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, a multimineral, prebiotic, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. And I think that's one of the main reasons I like and recommend AG1. It's really tasty and a really simple way to start each day and give your body the nutrition it needs. AG1 has been in my own life for about three years now, I think, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It is also really tasty. If you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access a brand new special offer where they are offering my audience five free travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D, a critical nutrient for our immune system. So many of you have taken advantage of their special offer since the turn of the year. Many of you have been sending me messages saying that it's really helping you with your energy and focus. Some of you are telling me how it's really improved your gut health and digestion. So if you want to take advantage of this offer, all you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. So I'm generally not an anxious person, I wouldn't say. So unlike some of my friends or family members, you know, I'm not sort of hardwired to be anxious. I'm pretty laid back. And um, I was in a, in a rush, I to get here and so I, I rushed onto the train I had to kind of run down the platform because I, I thought it said platform four and it was 14 so I went you, you know Euston station it's yeah. quite so and it was like I don't know one minute before it left or something so I so my heart rate was quite up anyway what went into this uh into the into the carriage and I'd, I'd sort of asked when I, when I booked the seats, I never actually sit in the booked seats normally, but I thought I would be do do some work, and I wanted one of those table seats, you know, with where your laptop plugs in and stuff. Anyway, I got there, and there was a, an elderly couple sat there, and I thought, well, I'll just leave them there. But the train was quite busy and really hot, and I suddenly thought, oh, I feel really claustrophobic. I think I'm going to have a panic attack, and it happened once before when you know when in winter months where there's one train every two hours and we this was pre-covid we were sort of totally crammed in and I remember thinking oh my god I can't breathe you know that sort of feeling I'm sure a lot of people relate to it so what I'd done years ago is I'd learned how to do these exercises just just because I not because I need them particularly myself but I can you know tell other people about it and one of them is this thing called anchoring where you you build a state so say you sort of do a relaxation exercise for five minutes and you want to kind of mark it you can pinch your earlobe like this 
And if you do it every day for five minutes and keep pinching your earlobe at the end, after a while you can just pinch your earlobe and a swathe of calm comes over you. It's just like conditioning in some ways. So this morning I was thinking, how you know, because if you, if you think too much about that feeling of your racing heart and the fact that you're feeling hot and bothered... You suddenly want to just get out. You know, these people like who go on flights and trains. And yeah. I don't get that. That This is like the second time I've been, only the second time I've had it in, in, as I say, in 20 years. And I sort of thought, what can I do to get my vagal tone up really quickly? So I generally always carry a bottle of water. So drinking water does it. I pinched my earlobe. I suddenly slowed my breathing down and I started sort of humming. It sounds ridiculous, this, but all four of those things increase your vagal tone which is the nerve that kind of calms you down it's the opposite of flight or flight and within 30 or 40 seconds i felt fine that's not something that you teach on a course but the point is the science about the vagus nerve is out there everyone knows what you what you have to do and i guess you know i do this one minute sort of meditation twice a day when i get to work in the car i do it before i go into work so that i'm ready for the day and then i do it sort of in the driveway when I pull up at the end of the day just so that I'm ready to, you know you're not taking the doctor's bag into the house and so I'm already slightly wired to be able to do those things so it was very easy for me to do yeah. but it's just an example of how you know you know is that a lifestyle intervention I don't yeah. know but it's it's sort of it, it's what I'm saying is there is some there's lots of thinking behind it but once you sort of start doing these things they become second nature and yeah. easy i'm not saying it's a cure for panic attacks i'm just saying there are things that that can be done it's it's a great example of of many things i think self-empowerment is one of them which is you know you've invested time in your life to understand what kind of tools you can take around with you in life in your back pocket right so mm. what what's what i love about those tools is that they didn't require you to have brought something with you in your backpack yes okay the you water, have the water. Yeah. okay the water <laughs> but you know it wasn't it wasn't so onerous that let's say you didn't have the water there right because a lot of these things are a threshold mm. effect aren't they it's mm. not that one thing in isolation mm. is always going to do the job but mm. add two or three of them in together exactly and mm. you start to get that impact and it depending on the level of mm. stress and um I guess agitation or anxiety, you know, it will depend on how much, how many interventions you need to use. But I love that that you know, pinching your ear, free, mm. accessible. You know, a breathwork practice, mm. free, accessible. Mm. You happen to have water with you, mm. and humming, mm. right? Well, mm. These are that is lifestyle medicine, right? That is wellness, and I think it beautifully illustrates the the art and science of medicine. But I guess expanding that further, the art and science of wellness. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, I, I, th I think you're right. I, I, I was sort of, sort of thinking, what, what would I do if I saw someone having a panic attack? You know, you know, because sometimes you sort of think, well, what would I do? You know, as a doctor, what would I do if there was a person sitting next to me going through the same thing? And I think I would do the same for the. You know, sometimes it's. I had someone come round to look at our house recently because it's bits are falling apart and it needs a bit of work and I said to him I said I want you to sort of think of this as sort of your house like what would you what would you do if you know you had to I don't know fix this bit of wall or build a barbecue yeah. area whatever it is and it's the same I, I'm, I'm very much like that with interventions you know I think something that's going to sort of almost help anyone because all the all of those things you, you're right they're kind of free and they're 
you know, we know the science will sort of work, you know, why it works is different. So some people will drink the water and think, oh, my mouth's dry. And, and now my mouth's not dry. I wasn't thinking that actually, but a lot of people having panic attacks would get, you know, some yeah. relief from the water for that reason. But so it's, um, it was just an interesting one, because it happened today. I just thought I'd mention it. You know, following that up then, so that would have been, I guess, three or four hours mm. ago. Mm. We could almost plot out what might your morning have looked like had you not had access to those things. So, mm. um, you know, I don't know if you're up for that thought experiment, mm. but mm. let's say you weren't aware of humming, mm. breathwork practice, pinching mm. your ear and drinking water mm. as a way of trying to mm. manipulate your, mm. your vagal mm. tone. The only other way out is to get off the train. I would, I would literally have... Because you, you're, you're sort of, you know, that you get something called hypervigilance, yeah. don't you, with panic, where the more you think about it, the worse it gets. And then you think, I've got to get off, I've got to get off, I've got to get off this plane or train or whatever. That's very common as well. You know, and as you talk about, as we talk about the causes, you talk about what you did mm. uh, on the train this morning. Mm. Like, it just brings up for me that there's other concepts around lifestyle. I'm not sure lifestyle is always the best term, as you say, because it really, as you say, it's 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 using your life mm. as medicine. Mm. You know, Life medicine might life be a better, medicine. better moniker than um, lifestyle medicine, but yeah. Yeah, it's something that I've discussed actually with Gareth, a videographer who's normally filming. Mm. Um, mm. He's never quite got the term lifestyle medicine. We, mm. We've speak about a lot he goes it's kind of like your life really isn't it rather than lifestyle and it's it's just interesting how we talk about these things but you know through the conventional lens of what lifestyle means to a lot of people i would mm. say people understand this concept that lifestyle can be prevention right if i look after myself if let's take these four pillars food movement sleep and relaxation if I pay attention to those four areas, I'm going to hopefully reduce the likelihood that I'm going to get, you know, a heart attack, um, Alzheimer's, even some forms of cancer, right? We, we know that our lifestyle plays a role in prevention. But what I've always tried to do in my public facing work, but also with patients, frankly, is, is really help people understand it ain't just prevention, right? It can also be treatment when you have got symptoms, right? You can use the lifestyle as treatment and you can also use it to reverse things. You know, we mentioned evolving autoimmunity a few times where we see people along that continuum where if we don't intervene, actually, if we don't help educate them in terms of how they can manipulate their lifestyle to influence their health, they might in two or three years end up with a more serious condition. And I kind of really still don't feel that is, even when I talk to doctors, I still think we're missing that piece that it's not, oh yeah, prevention is better than cure. Prevention is better than, okay, sure. I don't disagree with that. Prevention is better than cure, but it ain't just prevention, right? You know, managing your stress levels better changes your biology, it changes your blood sugar levels, it changes your genetic expression, it changes how inflamed you are, right? So these kind of simple practices, breath work, coming, whatever, they change your biology. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely shifted. If you look at every kind of guideline and every kind of, you know, if you look at NICE guidance, for example, everything is always about earlier and earlier detection for things you know whether it's you know cognitive decline becoming 
a particular type of dementia, you know, oh, we must sort of screen for this and pick it up earlier. Great, but, you know, what are we going to do about it? You know, that that's the the conundrum, isn't it? Or, oh, you've got altered bowel habit. Oh, well, you know, NG12, whatever guidance says, we, you need this test. But then often they come back normal, but, but the person's still got symptoms. And so it's a bit the intention is is right you know it's brilliant but but that's going on at that end then and but then there's this sort of as i say as i said and you were saying bubbling up in terms of mental health but in slow motion there's this sort of growing army of people who who are sort of becoming ill you know as time goes on sort of invisibly and it's not to you know not to scare people at all but but there are sort of things and and i'm i you know i'm a moderate i'm not someone who is perfect. I'm no angel. I, I, you know, as you know, <laughs> I probably, you know, um, I like a drink and, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, but there's got to be some sort of counterbalance, you know, but if, if, for example, I say I like a drink, but if there was something in my health that I thought, you know what, I really, I really mustn't drink alcohol, you know, because it makes the difference between me dying in a year and in 20 years, I'd give it up, you know, and I think, I think that's, do you know what I mean? There's a yeah. sort of, you know, everyone's individual and everyone's got their reasons for why they do what they do. And I'm very aware of that. You can't just, you know, habits are difficult to change, aren't they? As we know. You mentioned habits. Mm. You said at the start of the conversation, how work is really, really tough. Mm. Maybe about as tough as you've known it. Mm. You're saying that you've never seen it this bad with patients in terms of the general mental well-being of your practice population and I guess the wider population as a whole. On top of that, you've obviously had a very difficult year. Mm. Um, your dad died mm. this year. How has that been for you? Yeah, really, really tough. I mean, it was not really expected and i think i think there are lots of things that go through my mind you know he was 79 sort of not far off 80 uh, recently it would have been my parents 50th wedding anniversary so it was sort of you know it was one of those things and dad always used to kind of feel rightly or wrongly that his luck wasn't great and they, and he'd be sort of laughing now thinking oh typical i didn't make it to 80 and i didn't you know sort of you know this is just classic you know m m what was written sort of thing and um he, he was actually fairly well sort of person up until you know the point where he he needed a knee replacement went in for this knee replacement having mustered up the courage after like 10 years of almost needing it and, and sort of walking around with this funny limp um but was cognitively really very well and then suddenly came out of hospital and was delirious you know which you know if you don't know what delirium is it's a bit like um acute confusion you know just getting up in the middle of the night wandering around not knowing where he was you know and we didn't really know why and it, it turned out that his blood sodium was low and ultimately he actually had a, a lymphoma that hadn't been sort of picked up by anyone and it didn't last more than six weeks and sort of you know and I think I think you know that's just the sort of the the what you know the very clinical what happened but what's weird about grief I think you know nothing I mean we knew at some at one point look he probably wasn't going to come out of hospital because the longer you're in hospital getting kind of inpatient care the worse your outcomes are likely to be when you're that age and you're sort of yeah. and they don't really know what's going on and it takes so much time with tests to find out what the underlying cause is for these things and um yeah I I I 
I've got lots of reflections on the grief. I guess the first thing is I was very lucky because I got to see him before he died and all the stuff I wanted to sort of say to him, I was able to. And I know a lot of people don't get to do that because there's a sudden death, you know, and you're far away and you think, oh, you know, I never got to say this or that. So you were, very... you were quite lucky with that, weren't you? Because you were away on holiday. I was. It was the first time we dared to go away for you know, over two years because of what's been going on in the world. And um, we we only went to sort of Gibraltar because it was close and I knew if anything happened, I could get back. But he, he was, I'd been to see him a couple of days before we were going and he was improving. So I thought, well, he actually looks a lot better. But then a day into the holiday, he just totally crashed which is like a medical term for just you know became very ill uh suddenly and I, I knew i had to come back so then he only lasted a day after that so i we did the right thing coming yeah. back it was very very stressful but um you know and, and I, there's just so much to do isn't there i know you've been through this but in terms of filling out forms and probate and telling people you have to sort of ring all of his friends and what one of the things that sort of not annoyed me but I found difficult was this, you know, a lot of that we've got mutual uncles, haven't we? <laughs> sort of as in like, you know, they're not sort of biological uncles, but they're kind of part of that Bengali community. They're all nice, very nice people. But two things really. One is a lot of people don't know what to say when someone's bereaved and they're kind of looking for an out in the conversation because it's quite awkward. And the second one is this, oh, be strong for your mum, you know, which w w I totally get what they mean because they've probably been through this yeah. themselves. But after a while, I was thinking, well, hang on, what about, what about, what about me and my grief? You know, I, if I'm going to constantly be strong for, you know, there's an element of that. And, 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 and also some people who I wasn't expecting to be that supportive, you know, outside close friends were, were amazing. And then other people who I was expecting a bit more from were, were useless. And I think that's another common thing because I say useless, I wasn't expecting, you know, anything apart from just sort of a phone call or something. But I think it's fear of not knowing what to say. Yeah. You know, there's an element of that. And um, it's, it's been weird. Nothing prepares you for it, you know. And I know, the thing is, a lot of people thinking, oh, this, you know, well, it's your dad and he was old and he passed away. What's the big deal? Um, but it's when it's the only sort of grief you've experienced, that's your experience. I, I can't imagine what it's like losing a child or, a, you know, or, or a sort of a sudden death that's unexpected. At least this was sort of we knew it was coming but it's still it's tough it's much it, harder than i thought it would be is this your first like not as a doctor but on a personal level is this your first real experience of grief yes it is i, I mean as, as a as a doctor I've, I've sort of helped be there for patients when they've been through it but never experienced it and so you're you're kind of trying to empathize and what, what I never used to get was occasionally my mum or in, in, and, and some of my patients as well would get very very sad many years after losing their loved one do you, you know what I mean yeah. by this you know and and not not because it was the anniversary or anything but they'd suddenly get a thought about dad or mum or or the, or the person they'd lost and become very sad and I never when I was much younger I never used to get that going well I'm like, mum, it was like 20 years ago since, um, you know, Nana died or whatever, you know, her dad died. And and she'd be like, oh, no, I'm just feeling very sad. I'm really missing him. And I, I, I didn't quite, yeah. do you know what I mean? When you're immature, you don't quite understand why that's the case. But it's the finality of it and the permanence where, 
you suddenly think, you know, you take these things for granted, like, oh, well, Dad will sort that out, or Dad will know this, and you, you can't just suddenly ring them. I, I think on the flip side, there's something about, you know, I don't know whether you feel this, but I sort of feel that, you know, Dad's kind of always with me now, and I don't have to kind of worry about him you know getting yeah. old or whatever and I, in, a, in a way I think about him more now that he's not around yeah mm. it's interesting um you mentioned that a lot of people were looking for a way out of the conversation because there there is this general discomfort I remember chatting to Julia Samuel this amazing um psychotherapist who came on the show I think in September 2020 so almost a year and a half ago and we spoke we had a great conversation but towards the end of it we were chatting about death and we were talking about the language that we use around death and how often we soften our language to just sort of remove ourselves from it like you have lost someone and Julia was very clear that she thinks that's problematic um, because it keeps a distance between us and what's actually happened. It's not allowing us to confront it and really deal with it. And since that conversation, I've been very intentional about not using it, using that term, you've lost someone. So mm. I didn't say to you, you lost your dad this year, mm. which is how I might have said it. Like he's gone missing at Brent Cross or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... Exactly, right? I said, your dad died this yeah, year because yeah. like, that's yeah. what happened. Yeah, and it's, a, said, it's a fact. Yeah, it, yeah It's yeah. a fact. Mm. And I, I think we do this a lot, don't we? And, and I think there is a discomfort. And mm. um, one thing yeah. you said to me, you know, I called you pretty regularly, I think in the immediate mm. month or so. Mm. And... I remember you once were reflecting to me and you said, you know, you said something to this effect that I'm kind of getting the feeling that you never, you don't really grow up hmm. until you lose a parent. Was that what you said? You know, maybe you could clarify what it was and, and what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I, I know exactly when you mean and what you mean and, and what it was. I think it was... We'd spent a lot of time in the in the family home, which was sort of in the process of, of selling now. But um, and we were, I was looking through lots of old stuff, and and and, and I remember thinking, God, it's like sort of getting rid of my childhood. This is, you know, I've spent, you know, my, I think my parents were in that house for thirty eight years, and um, and I, I suddenly realised it wasn't really the the objects so much. It was more that, you know, losing a parent is like the final piece of becoming a proper grown-up, I think, is what I probably would have said to you. You know, that feeling of, right, the buck stops with me now. You know, it's like, you know, in terms of being a, not not like a family representative in an old-fashioned way, but it's like there's no one sort of higher up to kind of ask or, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, is it okay? You know, and suddenly decision-making and all of those things fall to you. Yeah, I mean, of course everyone's experience of death mm. is different yeah right so everyone's got the right to view it the way they want to to see it but mm. i've thought a lot about that since you said it and i whilst i don't know if it's true for everyone of course i really do think there's something to that for some of us i don't think we do grow up until we've lost a parent that was definitely true for me suddenly it's like okay 
it's you now. It's not, and I don't think I was even intentionally or unintentionally living in dad's shadow. I really don't think it was that. I don't think it's mm. as, as linear as that. There's just a something about it where, it, as you say, the book now starts with you. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Do, do you still yeah. feel that way now a few months on from saying that? Yeah, I, I do. I do. I think it's, it, what's even more ridiculous is I'm very conscious of that being a thing. And I do feel that, um, but you, you, you know, I don't, I don't think I've actually had that much time to grieve. It's just been such a relentless year and we've just not stopped. And so, you know, I've got a bit of time off coming up and I think it might sort of hit me. I'm not even sure it's really hit me. I haven't been able to chew it down. I haven't had any sort of bereavement counselling, all the things I would suggest to patients. But but I, I've had a lot of great support, you know, from yourself and, and other friends and family. So, you know, and, you know, I hate these cliches, but you sort of sometimes dad wasn't very sentimental and so a lot of the other the other funny thing is I sort of I'm sure you get this as well I sort of know exactly what my dad would say if he were here for example and that's quite nice you know you can predict almost what you know and that's what I mean they're always with you you know what I mean it's yeah. like yeah I, I know what you know oh, I need some advice what would dad what would dad say and what would dad do there's an element of that and so yeah I haven't really taken stock of it i think i've just kept we've kept going there have been lots of other things to do like you know moving you know well that, that that kind of speaks to something you said earlier which is that often it blows up a few years later people suddenly yeah. experience real growth later now there's many reasons for that one of the reasons in my experience is that it wasn't fully processed yeah, and yeah. life got in the way as you're saying you are a busy busy nhs gp you've got two young kids you know your wife works mm. um you've gone back into work and i know what your work days look like they're pretty insane um we need time mm. to grieve we need time you know even beyond grief right we need time to understand our emotions. Mm. I, I honestly feel this is one of the biggest well-being problems with people these days is the ease with which we can distract ourselves. So therefore, because we can distract ourselves, we do. And therefore, we don't lean into the pain. We don't sit with the pain. We don't understand what that pain is trying to tell us because it's much easier to have mm. a beer, mm. glass of wine, you know, mm. spend a couple of hours scrolling. And I say that with no judgment mm. and, and criticism mm. at all. I get the temptation. Mm. Do you think your experience this year has made you better able to counsel patients who are dealing with grief? I think possibly in the in the way that all the things i've just mentioned now in terms of my own feelings you can you can now preempt and kind of understand when someone goes well you know my brother's being really difficult or my sister's just not talking to me because those sort of things happen as well because it's very stressful you know yeah. very stressful for everyone and everyone's processing things differently um and there are going to be potentially in families arguments and you know just about arrangements and who's doing what and and although we never had any of that but I, I think you know 
being able to just say, oh, you know, hey, you know, some people just don't know how to deal with grief. Don't worry, just because your best friend hasn't rung, you know, that sort of thing gives them some context. So I think I, I'm certainly I'm no grief counsellor and, and uh, you know, I'm not qualified to do that. But I think just being supportive and compassionate and just listening, sometimes you you need an extra, you know, someone outside of that immediate yeah. family to just be able to let off steam to um so so i think i'd like to think so yeah i think that's one of our main roles as healthcare professionals actually in terms of certainly in primary primary care and general practice i think being able to be a good listener with your words but with your body language as well I think it's one of the most powerful forms of medicine we can give people because often they don't have it in their own life. And often there's too much baggage and history with immediate family to have that kind of non-judgmental listening. And I think this is, again, something that we do touch on in our course, but it's something I didn't learn at medical school. I have learned, uh, I'm interested in your reflections on this, but I, I have learned that me being able to listen with compassion, with empathy, without judgment, is medicine in and of itself. Sometimes that is all you need to do. Mm -hmm. And someone can almost use you as their sounding board that's not sort of pushing back at them, but they kind mm -hmm. of process what's going on just because we provided the space for that. I don't know, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I really do. I mean, recently one of my um, ex-partners who's retired um, we were meant to be having his retirement party just before COVID lockdown one hit. Yeah. And now sort of two years later, we only got around to having it quite recently when things unlocked a bit. And um, so it's long overdue. And he was a a GP cut from this cloth, What exactly what you're talking about. And I, I would say I am as well. Um, but what, what Mark was very good at doing is that his patients, a lot of, a lot of, um, his patients just, you know, you could say they were dependent on him, but he was just very, very, very good. And I sat, you know, I sat in with him. I remember when I first started at the practice for the, you know, for a week or two, and often he wouldn't say anything. He would literally just sit there and kind of nod, but in, in a very kind way. Mm. And I, I remember making a, a speech at his retirement, just, just off the cuff going, you know, there's lots of different types of doctors in this room. You know, there's some that are good at managing people. There are some that are good at ticking boxes, but Mark's the kind of doctor that changes people's lives. And, and, and he, he did, you know, if you listen to the kind of stories that his, his patients tell you, they'll go, yeah, I couldn't have got through the last, you know, 25 years with, without him. But if you're looking very clinically at, uh, well, hang on a minute. You know, if, if you're if you're using the lens that unfortunately now modern medicine has to because we're so busy, that kind of medicine has been totally eroded. We don't get the time to do that. It's really sad, yeah. and some patients do need that continuity because you keep them going because, and often they'll have enormous amounts of trauma in their in their life story, which is why they need. Yeah compassion um and actually the medical model doesn't work it's like well and, and the problem with now that we're having i think in general practice is because uh, because there aren't enough gps um they're carving out bits of our work going oh we'll, we'll, we'll chuck a physio in and a pharmacist who are all great that's brilliant but people don't sort of work in 
bits. You need someone to kind of, do you know what I mean? But a lot of doctors do think that's the way that it works. It's like, well, you can just, well, what, you know, mental health, just book them straight in with the mental health person. That's fine. But if it's someone that I've known for 10 years, yeah. it's much better that I do, I, I may not be as good at mental health as that particular practitioner, but that's not the point. I know their whole story, how they tick. They, you know, well, there's this trust that we're, builds we're not up, just this it? kind of robot with all these different parts that we can just oh, mental health. Let's just put that part in there to get yeah. tuned up and then put it back into the hole. It's and I think that's what we like to think we offer as GPs. Mm. It's whole person care, whole isn't it? Person mm. care, yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm. Um, you say that's the way modern medicine needs to go or has needed to go because it's so busy. Mm. I, I don't think we need to go that way. I think there have been pressures that have put yeah. us down that way. Mm. But I don't think we needed to. And actually, I think if we do a cold, hard assessment of how well it's working, mm. it's just not working for so many chronic, uh, low-grade sort of lifestyle and environment driven problems it just doesn't work and i guess that's the kind of doctor who when an external source comes to monitor you know what's going on what have they done how many boxes have they ticked it's like well that stuff isn't showing up as well mm. on those parameters but in terms of what he's doing for patients mm. it's like that phrase isn't it that not not everything that matters can be measured and not everything that we measure matters. Yeah, absolutely. That sums it up, I think. And you're quite right. And there's lots of research on this as well in terms of, you know, kind of, you know, compassionate inquiry, compassionate listening, active listening, all of those things. And 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 some one, one something that springs to mind is the work of Milton Erickson, who was a sort of a doctor and a hypnotherapist and, you know, as well. And he did lot he looked at lots of recordings of doctors and patients and found these patterns and found that, you know, doctors who talked down to patients generally had worse outcomes, you know, and the doctor-patient relationship wouldn't work. Whereas if you sort of, if the doctors who listened and were compassionate, their patients had better outcomes, they were less likely to complain, you know, and it, it makes sense. We talk about it as a doctor-patient relationship, but it goes beyond that because what is a doctor-patient relationship? It's a relationship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right? I know it's so just been labelled as... It's, yeah, it's yeah, labelled yeah. a certain mm. way, but think about an interaction you or I might have with our wives, right? Well, does it go well if someone's talking down to someone? Mm. Well, no, <laughs> clearly not. Does it go well if someone's not actively listening and trying to butt in and you know give their opinion? Kind of no. So... Yes, there's something unique about it in one level, but then you could argue that all relationships are unique. It's about fundamentally mm. being a compassionate human being who's sensitive to the needs of people around you. And I guess if you can do it in your consultation, hopefully you can do it outside your consultation in all aspects of life. Of course, it's not always that easy, mm. is it? Because we yeah. can get triggered by the people closest to us. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm, it's just a relationship, yeah, it isn't is, it? It is, it is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, the hard thing with that. One of the things years ago that I realised is, you know how sometimes it's, it's very easy to say, oh, so-and-so is really irritating, you know. Um, it's an easy thing to, to think. And one of the things, you know, that you know, I'm, I'm writing a little bit about is how, you know, your habits become you, don't they? And And 
what I what I mean by so and so is really irritating is that the things that that person is doing, their behaviours are actually irritating. It's not them, and I and, and the way I sort of myself kind of manage that is is I try and look at people's behaviours rather than thinking it's them. Otherwise, anytime anyone does anything, you think, oh well. You know they're an idiot or they're whatever, and and it's not actually them. It's that their behaviour is there for a reason. And if you look at the behaviour and separate it from the person, you can handle it a lot better. I find that as a doctor as well as just a human being. So tell us a little bit more about the book. I'm so excited you've got this book deal. Oh, thank you, mate. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I think you know the articles you've written in the press. You know the the mainstream press for years. I think are very well written, very. I think you're a very stylish writer. Oh, thank you. Um, so I, for one, can't wait for it. But it's not out for a long time, is it? No, that's right. It's out in January 23. And um, essentially, the book is, it's on health and well-being. I'm not going to give the title away. But it's got in it kind of, you know, a lot of the stuff we've just talked about today, but kind of what we try and teach and what your books try and kind of educate the population about if you, if that's the right phrase but essentially rather than just teaching doctors and healthcare practitioners there should be a way of taking charge of your health and look, laying all these things out and almost in a sort of a programmatic way thinking wait a second I, I just I need some knowledge but I also need to know what I'm about what makes me tick and how I can fix myself yeah partly because you know, that kind of medicine and those sort of symptoms, health services that in this country are available for free are buckling. That sort of empowerment that you want as a, as an individual to be able to be more in control of your health, but also understanding certain nuances that I think you and I know that on our course, a lot of our colleagues, it's not because we're any cleverer, we've just sort of done more reading or whatever, but these little sort of elegant tools that that just work very quickly yeah. it's 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 not i wouldn't call it health hacks exactly but they're sort of things that that are totally based on evidence and science that works but people just may not see it in that way yeah. you know just like some of the concepts in your books i think it's got a lot of that type of writing in it and i, I i'm you know i've got to write it actually i'm sort of <laughs> nervous i'm not going to be able to submit it in time but um yeah, I'm really, I'm so excited because it's just, it's almost like my, you know, I, I don't want to sort of big myself up, but my kind of, in my head, my kind of clinical wisdom put on, put in pages yeah, in the book. I, I you think know, it'll so. be incredibly valuable because, you know, so many patients want to see you. There's always a long wait because of your manner, but also because of, I think, these little clinical pearls, these practical tips that you have accumulated you know, by the time the book comes out, it'll be 25 years of practice pretty much mm. for you. That's mm. tens of thousands of patients that you've seen mm. in very challenging conditions and short consultations and pressured consultations. So, you know, you have to figure out very quickly what works, mm. don't you, for real patients in real life with mm. busy lives, right? Mm. How can you give them tools mm. that they can access and make them better? So I think it's going to be great. I've enjoyed our conversation. I didn't quite know where it was going to go today. No, we never do. We never do. And um, we'll definitely talk again on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, um, I'd love to. about the book. Good luck with the writing process. Thank you, mate. Um, just to finish off, mm. podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in ourselves, mm -hmm. we get more out of life. Mm. Given 
what you're seeing day to day in your job as a medical doctor. Mm. I wonder if you could just share at the end some of your sort of final thoughts or tips for people who are struggling right now. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, everyone is struggling more than they were and the world is very uncertain and people that like certainty are the ones that are struggling the most, I would guess. And things like anxiety and depression come from that place of uncertainty. And, you know, particularly if you're someone who's a perfectionist or someone who is able to keep on top of lots of things, those things are not possible in this day and age. And so my sort of one piece of advice and what I try and do myself is just to live in the moment because at the moment that is all we can do. And if you kind of live from moment to moment to moment, what you'll find is that the background environment and the background interference of how doom and gloom things are just won't get to you. Just savour the moment. If you're sipping coffee, really taste it. If you're talking to someone, really look in their eyes and try and clock the colour of their eyes. When you're listening, try and listen to the, the timbre of what you're listening to. Be in the moment as much as you can, and that way you'll get the most out of life. Great advice. Really helpful. Thanks for coming up on the train. Thanks for coming to the studio. And uh, I'll see you soon, mate. Yeah, see you soon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, mate. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life. Now, if you are a healthcare professional and you want to learn more about how to use lifestyle as medicine with your patients and with your clients, you can now book onto the online course that you heard myself and Ian talk about in the podcast. It is called Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine. You can either go to www.prescribinglifestylemedicine.org or just click on the link for the course in the episode description in your podcast app. And as you heard in the show, this course is now available to all healthcare professionals all over the world. Doctors, whether you're a GP or a specialist, pharmacists, physios, health coaches, and so many more. And of course, if you're not a healthcare professional, but you know one who you feel may be interested to learn about how to utilize many of the tools that we talk about on my podcast with patients and clients, please do also let them know about the course. Before you go, just wanted to let you know about Friday Five. It's my weekly email containing five simple ways or ideas to improve your health and happiness. I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. If that sounds like something you would like to receive each Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatsky.com forward slash Friday five. And if you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Please also do consider supporting the sponsors who are essential for these episodes to come out weekly as they currently do. 
Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please do press follow or subscribe on whichever podcast platform you've listened on. And always remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more.